Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 5. Having recorded his encounter with the risen, glorified Christ in chapter 1, and then Jesus' assessment of his church in chapters 2 and 3, John was then called by God, called by Christ, to come in the Spirit into heaven. And that's chapter 4 of Revelation. He was called there to receive revelation about God's plan for the earth once the church age is complete and the saints have been resurrected and caught up to be with Christ in heaven. The first thing that he saw when he entered into that realm was the throne of God, and he saw the Father seated there on the throne. Around the throne was a continuous rainbow and also 24 lesser Thrones with 24 elders seated on those thrones who are representatives of the fullness of the church, the bride of Christ. He witnessed lightning and thunder emanating from the throne, which are signs of impending judgment on the world. Before the throne, John saw the fullness of the Holy Spirit in the form of seven torches of fire associated with judgment in the form of war. Also before the throne was an expanse that John said looked to him like a sea of glass. And then finally, at four points around the throne, front and back, left and right, were four living creatures, cherubim, angels, who stand ready to perform the Father's bidding And there they were giving continual worship and glory to the Father on the throne. That was chapter 4. As I said last week, chapter 4's context goes beyond chapter 4. And so as we today cross over into Revelation chapter 5, I want to remind us that the content that we're going to encounter here is not something that is fundamentally different but as a continuation of the revelation being given to John there in heaven. Today we're going to deal with verses 1 through 7. Let's read those now. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven nor on earth nor under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Well, as John is taking in the otherworldly scenes in heaven, we find here in chapter 5 that his eyes catch a new detail concerning God the Father. He notices that the Father is extending a scroll He's extending the scroll as if he expects for someone to walk up and to take it. Now, this scroll is important, so we need to ask, what is it about? What can we discern from the passage about the scroll? There are three things that I want to put before you. 
First, it is said that the scroll is in God's right hand, that it is in God's right hand. This is what we call an anthropomorphism, which is the ascribing of human characteristics to that which is not human. I'm sure that you're aware. If not, I'm going to make you aware now that God the Father is not human. God the Father does not possess any physical qualities. And this is something that the Apostle John knew quite well and that he wrote into his gospel. In John's gospel, chapter 4, verse 24, he said, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So God the Father does not have a literal right hand. But we speak of him in these terms because we who are physical and have almost no understanding of a spiritual realm would have a difficult time describing God and or his activities without speaking in terms that we can understand. And so John says, he sees this vision, and, and uh, to him it appears as though the one on the throne is extending a right hand, and in that hand is a scroll. Now I want to say one more thing about this idea of God's right hand, because I think it's very important before we move on. The idea of God's right hand in Scripture is all about these things, honor authority, and power. We get that from a variety of sources, but just to remind you that when Jesus ascended back to heaven, where did he go? He took his place at the right hand of the throne of God. So this idea of God's right hand or his right hand side is all about honor, authority, and power. So the fact that this scroll is being extended, as John says, by God's right hand, means that it is something of utmost importance. The second thing that we can discern uh, from this scroll, from the passage, is that there, it had writing on the front and on the back of its page. To have writing filling the front and the back indicates that there is no room for any additional information to be added. In other words, this scroll, what it contains, is complete and it is unchanging. Complete and unchanging. Very much like the Word of God. It is complete and it is unchanging. When you think about it, by the very nature of who and what God is, whatever he sets himself to do is, is not going to find anything lacking. Whatever God sets himself to do, there's going to be no need for change or adaptation. Because when God acts, in whatever way he acts, um, what he is acting upon or creating is exactly as it should be. Um, I write sermons every week and they're never complete and they're never final and they're always changing and they're always being adapted because I'm just an, a finite person. But with God, there is no change because everything that he produces by nature of who he is and what he is is complete and perfect. The third thing that we can um, take from this little idea of the scroll here is that it is sealed with seven seals. And history recounts that it was required under Roman law for a will and testament to be sealed seven times. So this idea of a document being sealed in this manner is not something that was foreign to John or to those of his day and time. We also find that it was customary for lease agreements or marriage contracts or uh, uh, a contract or whatever you would call it, something in writing that is saying that this slave is now free and is able to engage life as a free man or woman uh, had to be sealed in a similar uh, kind of way. 
But this scroll is not a will and testament. It is not a lease agreement. It is not a marriage contract. And it is not a document that is giving freedom to someone who's been enslaved. Actually, what this, what this scroll is, it is a title deed. It is a title deed. This scroll is a title deed to all that God the Father promised God the Son for being the willing sacrifice for sin. Psalm chapter 2 is a messianic psalm. Verses 7 and 8 contain what is essentially a conversation between the Father and the Son. Verse 7 says, The Lord, or capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, Yahweh said to me, You are my Son. Today I've begotten you. Does that sound familiar? Today I've begotten you or just I have begotten you? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only what? Begotten son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that God the Father chose his son to be his personal revelation, to be his personal communication to the world, and that he appointed him the heir of all things through whom he created the world. And that brings us today to truth point number one. Various scriptures reveal that God the Father made promises to God the Son that he would inherit the earth, also inherit the redeemed of the earth, and that he would rule over it as king. Now these are things that God the Father made clear to the Son, and we can find that in a variety of passages in the Scripture. Now here's my question. Has any of that happened yet? It has? Oh, well, okay. Let's, you're smart, aren't you? <laughs> true. But we're not, we're not going there. Already, but not yet. Right. That is true. Because whatever God says is, is, is as good as done, right? But it hasn't happened in, 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 in physical time, in real time. Christ has not yet inherited the earth. Uh, he has not fully inherited the redeemed. In fact, all the redeemed aren't even in the family yet. And he is not yet ruling as king over it all. And we have to ask the question, well, why not? And the answer that I'm going to give is, it basically comes down to the father's timing. There are things that the father had determined that would be, and that these promises would be, be fulfilled at a particular point in time. Speaking very briefly of the father's timing, I'll just start at creation. You know, God gave Adam dominion over the earth. Through the fall of Adam, he forfeited his dominion to Satan, who, by the way, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, is the God of this world. Little g God. But he is the, 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 the ruler, so to speak, in certain terms. Of this world, I think we can see that everywhere we go, his influence. And of course, he remains so to this day. Now, we don't often think of the gospel in this way, but part of Christ's salvific work includes redeeming the creation that he made that was put under bondage because of Adam's sin. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 23. It is through his cross and his resurrection that Jesus defeated Satan and put in motion the events that will lead to the fullness of creation's deliverance, but also the fullness of the deliverance of those who are redeemed by his blood. And so these are things that have been going on throughout the millennia. They are still in effect today. But back there 2,000 years ago, 
John, in his heavenly vision, is about to see Christ, whom the Scriptures calls the second Adam. He is about to see him receive what is rightfully his. And the details about how all of that is going to come to final fruition are written in the scroll that is in the Father's hand. So what I'm trying to say there is this. Although that scroll has not been fully extended and received by Christ and the seals have not yet begun to be opened, nonetheless, John saw that into the future and understood what that was about. And in that scroll is the title deed to everything that God has promised his son and how it will come to fruition. And as we move on through the book of Revelation, we will discover the seven seals of this scroll, which will lead to seven trumpets, which then will lead to seven bowls. All of these 21 successive judgments that are all part of that scroll will lead and culminate with the full and bodily return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to take his creation and his people into his possession, which is rightfully his. And so what I want to say to you is that this is no mere scroll. Again, it is the title deed to the earth, which when opened will set in motion the successive judgments that will secure Christ's legal ownership that Adam forfeited through his sin. Now, as you're listening to these things, it is my thought that you may be finding some of this fascinating, but no doubt it is raising more questions than it is answering. I just want to say to you, there is absolutely no way on any given Sunday that I can answer all those questions. So I'm just going to encourage you to be patient. Be patient, because as we go through, I think many of the questions that you have will eventually be addressed and will come to light. But the scroll. As we move to verses 2 through 4, and we see John witnessing the scroll being extended by God's right hand, he says that he sees a mighty angel. Now, this angel is not identified. We can make all types of speculation, but the angel's name is not mentioned. But this mighty angel is proclaiming something with a loud voice. He is asking, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to break its seals? John reports that no one was identified. Try to imagine that. The Father is on his throne. He is extending this scroll. He's anticipating someone to come and take it. The search is done throughout heaven and earth and under the earth. And from John's perspective, there's no one that is worthy. Now, of course, of course, God the Father knows who is worthy. The Son knows who is worthy. The Holy Spirit knows who is worthy. But this scene is intended to communicate that among the angels, among the elders, among the saints, and John himself, that they were completely unable to identify anyone on their level who was worthy to open the scroll. That's pretty amazing when you think about someone like Abraham, the father of faith, or Moses, or maybe King David, the apostle Paul, surely. And yet on the level of these living people, no one is found who is worthy. They're not worthy to take it, and they're not even worthy to look into it. And we see in the passage that this brought John to uncontrollable tears of sorrow. 
He says, I began to weep. I began to weep is translated from the word klao, which means to cry profusely or to wail or to lament. This is not just the shedding of a tear, but a guttural response, an absolute devastating cry. And we have to ask the question, well, why would John be so upset? Why would he react in such a, uh, 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 an outward way? What about this situation is causing him grief? And I want to tell you what I believe it is. I believe the reason that John is so filled with grief at this discovery that they can't find anyone who is worthy to take the scroll and open it, John understands, whether from the revelation of Scripture that had been given up to his time, and by the way, all of the Scripture had been written and was in distribution except for the book of Revelation by John's time, whether it was from that revelation that he understood these things or whether it was the illumination that he received being in heaven in the Spirit. John understood that within that scroll are the decrees of God Almighty pertaining to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. Promises that were made to the Messiah, promises that were made to Israel, promises that were made to the church. Let's talk a little bit about those in much brief form. Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 through 12, tells us that a promise was made by God in relation to the Messiah, that he would take full authority, that he would take full kingship over the earth and its nations. And we're going to look at that passage here in just a few moments. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 22 through 23 tells us that Israel uh, had promises about receiving the fullness of the covenants made to her by God. If you go through the scripture, you'll find that God made covenants with Israel about a specific land that would be theirs forever. He made promises about Israel having global prominence. He made promises about Israel being the people who would lead and teach the world to come about the Messiah, lead them to him and teach them about him. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 6, reveal to us that promises have been made to the church, the bride of Christ, that she will rule and reign over the earth in submission to her Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Now, I just barely touched the surface of that topic. But the point is, is that in this position that John is in, he sees all of this hanging in the balance. Truth point number two. If there is no one worthy to open the scroll, to unseal its seals, to unleash its judgments leading to the establishment of Christ's eternal kingdom, then from John's perspective, all is lost. If no one can take this, see, this, this scroll and open it up, and then, which, which then leads to the things written therein moving forward, then Satan, sin, and death wins. And that is why John is in such anguish. That is what is bringing him such grief. But then, one of the elders brought comfort to John. Verse 5, saying, weep no more. There's no need to cry, John. Behold, or look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The phrase, Lion of the tribe of Judah, harkens back to Jacob. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? 
whose name was eventually changed to Israel. Jacob was the father of the men who would become the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those patriarchs, his name was Judah. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, Jacob, Israel, spoke a divine prophecy over Judah. That brings us back then to Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 and 9, I'm reading really just for context. Verse 10 is where we're going. Here's what Jacob said over his son Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, if we stop and take a lot of time to unwind all of that, it becomes easier to understand. But this morning, we don't have that kind of time. So I'm going to just bring out a reading of verse 10 from the New Living Translation. I believe it makes it so much easier to grasp quickly, and I guarantee you it is interpreted correctly. Verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants. Meaning, Judah is going to be the kingly tribe until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. Truth point number three. Judah himself is not the focus of this prophecy. It's being spoken over him, but it's not about him. Its focus is on the one who's going to come through his lineage. And of course, being on the backside of these things, we now know that the Messiah is Jesus. And he's the one to whom this is being spoken. Jesus is who this prophecy points to. And I want you to notice what it says about him. It says about the Messiah, Jesus, that the scepter, the ruler's staff, belongs to him. And when he takes it up, then all the nations that are left will honor him. Again, I ask, has that happened yet? No, it has not happened yet. But within this scroll are the decrees of God that will bring this to pass. And we're going to see that as we move through the remainder of Revelation. And then the phrase, the root of David. The root of David harkens back to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 1, which says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Verse 10 goes on to say, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal or a banner for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. In other words, the nations will come to him to seek his wisdom and his counsel, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now Jesse is of the tribe of Judah. He is the father of David. David is the king of Israel to whom God made a promise that he would, through his lineage, have an everlasting kingdom. This would come through one of his sons, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. The fulfillment of that promise is found in Jesus, whom Matthew wrote, 
that his genealogy was that of being a son, a descendant of David. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Now, there's something here that I want to point out to you, and I'll admit that it may be mind-bending for you. It's a little mind-bending for me, but I'm going to try to show it to you because it's just so powerful, I think. The Messiah, Jesus, the prophets foretold, would come through the line of David, meaning that he would be a son a descendant of David. But here in this Revelation passage, we're seeing Jesus being referred to as what? The root of David. In horticultural terms, it is the root that gives life to the plant. And then the plant produces its many branches. So the question is, how can one be a branch and a root at the same time. The Messianic prophecies said that the Messiah would be both the root of it all and would be a branch coming from it as well. And if you think about that for a minute, it's impossible. The root cannot be the branch. The branch comes from the root. It's impossible. Unless you are the eternal creator, who is the root from which all creation comes. If through your omnipotent power you choose to implant yourself into your creation, so that what you gave life to through the creation now gives life to you in human form, then it can actually be done. And that is exactly what transpired with God the Son. Truth point number four. The creator, the root of all things, became part of his own creation. Born of Mary, a descendant of David, Jesus became the branch of Jesse, who is the father of David. Part two, this root of David and branch of Jesse is the lion of the tribe of Judah, whom we find has overcome. What did he overcome? Part three, through the cross and subsequent resurrection, Jesus overcame the sin curse, death, and Satan. And this, my friends, is what makes him uniquely qualified to bring the mercy and grace of God to bear upon the lives of those who repent and trust in his victory over these things. That is what makes Jesus worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, to unleash the decrees of the Father written therein that ultimately bring the fullness of God's eternal plan to pass. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. His ways are not our ways. I wouldn't do it this way. You wouldn't do it this way. But we're fallen. What do we know? His ways are not ours. They are mysterious in our thinking. Yet when examined, we find that they are faithful and true. And they are awesome to behold. As John is processing this revelation with the imagery of the Lion of Judah in his mind, we find that he beheld a new scene. He tells us that between the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, he saw not a lion, but a lamb. A lamb that is standing, that also has the appearance as though it has been slain. Jesus, who is the Lion of Judah, is about to overcome all of his enemies and to establish his eternal kingdom. But first, before that happened, he was the Lamb of God, sent to deal with the sin of the world. 
And the imagery that John is seeing should be clear to those who are familiar with Scripture. The lamb had, in fact, been slain, but the lamb is now standing because the lamb was resurrected. When John saw it, it had all the appearance of being slain, but it wasn't laying in a pool of blood. Instead, it was standing with life coursing through its veins. And so John is catching this imagery that is symbolic, and yet it points us to what is real. Because the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, was slain, was he not? He did die, but then he rose from the dead. And he stands today with power to forgive sin and to give sinners eternal life and eternity with God the Father. Now what John sees next is quite bizarre. He says that this lamb that appeared to have been slain but is standing there alive had seven horns and seven eyes. Seven horns and seven eyes. I know somebody's drawn a picture of that. And I probably should have put it up on the screen for you. But you can picture that. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? What's that all about? Well, let's start with the number seven. In Scripture, seven is the number of completion and perfection. You say, how so, Pastor Mike? Well, it stems from creation. God created all things in six days. And what did he do on the seventh? He rested. He rested, why? Because his work was complete. And he declared it good. He declared it perfect. And so we can see then that this idea of the seven in Scripture in these prophetic terms is a symbol of completion and perfection. Now we move on then to the horns. In prophetic context... The horn represents power and authority. Power and authority. You couple that with the number seven, and the communication is that the lamb possesses absolute power and authority. And that speaks then to the lamb's omnipotence. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. We turn our attention to the eyes. The eye is a symbol of awareness, a symbol of watchfulness. Again, you associate the number seven to the lamb in this context, and we come to find that the lamb is all-knowing. This speaks of his omniscience. He sees everything. Nothing escapes his watchful eye. Then we take into account that these seven eyes, as John says, represent the seven spirits of God, meaning the Holy Spirit in his fullness, who has been sent out into the world, into all the earth. And in that imagery, we discover that the Lamb is everywhere present, which speaks of His omnipresence. So we put that all together in a final truth point, truth point number five, which says to us, omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence are exclusive to Yahweh. No angel possesses those attributes. No human possesses those attributes. God as Father, Son, and Spirit are the only one. This imagery then informs us that this Lamb, Jesus the Christ, is in fact God Almighty. He is God Almighty in the person of the Son. And so these are the images These are the revelations that John receives there in chapter 5. 
he has now discovered who is worthy. And we come then finally to verse 7, which says, And he, that is the root of David, the branch of Jesse, the lion of Judah, the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, resurrected with perfect power, perfect knowledge, and perfect presence, he, being identified as that person, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. In other words, when he took the scroll and the idea that he's going to open it and the decrees of God are going to go into action and all that has been promised to the Messiah, to Israel, to the church will be fulfilled through that action. All of heaven breaks out in worship. Now I'm going to stop there. And Pastor Brett next Sunday is going to start with verse 8. He's going to carry you through verse 14. And you're going to be looking there at the worship of heaven. A new song to the Lamb. You're going to be specifically instructed and informed about the specific reasons through that act of worship that Jesus is the worthy one. You say, Pastor Mike, why is Pastor Brett going to do that next Sunday? Well, because Connie and I are going to be in Alabama. Our fourth grandchild is being born this week. And so we're going down to meet him. Yeah, so that's why I really would rather be here because I really am into this, but family takes precedent at least for one Sunday. Now, even though I have kind of seemingly brought things to a close, I'm not ready to close. So I want you to not get in the mindset yet of grabbing your stuff and getting prepared to go. I want to bring all of this symbolism down to its intended reality. Jesus is the creator who not only brought all things into existence, but took upon himself a new existence. Being 100% God, he became 100% man. And as a man, in his first coming, he came as the suffering servant of salvation, the Lamb of God, the all-sufficient sacrifice for the sin of the world. And we know that he fulfilled that calling. And after paying sin's debt with his own death, he rose from the dead, breaking death's chains for all who will embrace him as their Savior and Lord. And I ask you based on that, do you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Those of you who are here in the room, those who might be over in the overflow room, those who are connecting online, has there been a time in your life where recognizing that you are a sinner, condemned by God because of that fallenness, that you have confessed that sin, that you have turned and put your gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ and embraced him and what he did for you on the cross and through his resurrection, you've embraced him as your Savior and Lord. Has there been that time in your life? If not, is there any way that we could sit down and talk about that? My contact information is on the screen. As I say each Sunday, if you reach out, I'll reach back. I believe the Lord will meet you at the point of your need. After making atonement for sin, we know that Jesus returned to heaven to take his place at the right hand of the Father. And the scripture tells us that there he makes intercession for us day and night. And so Christian, I want you to know something. I want you to know that Jesus knows your name. Pastor Mike will forget it, <laughs> embarrassingly so, and I'll call you some other name, which is even worse, but he knows your name, 
He never forgets your name. And I also want you Christians to know this, that he knows your need. He's well aware of what is going on in your life. And I also want you to know that he knows your failings. And despite those failings, he loves you. And he prays for you. So I want you to know that this line of the tribe of Judah, this, this lamb that was slain before the foundation of world, the world, this Messiah, this Savior, who is in that position of power and authority, he prays for you. He prays for you. That should bring you comfort. He prays for you. And sinner, I want you to know that Jesus knows your name as well. And despite your spiritually fallen condition, he has made a way for that to change. And today he's giving me the opportunity to tell you a little bit about that. And so I ask again, can we talk? And I tell you that we need to talk because there is coming a day when the Father will extend that scroll in real time and Jesus the worthy one will take it and as we're going to see as we walk over into chapter 6 and beyond he will begin to break those seals one at a time and the world that does not know Christ as their Savior and Lord are going to go through a time of judgment that is not comparable to anything that has ever happened since time began. But the good news is, is that right now, that scroll is still sealed. And grace, rather than judgment, is being extended. And right now, if you will confess Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I invite anyone who is unsure to become sure. I invite anyone who knows they've not trusted Christ to today confess him as your Savior and Lord, believe in what he has accomplished for you, and become a dearly loved child of God. I invite you to turn to him now. And finally, Christian, all you Christians in this room, there's so many of you, I'm, I'm happy about that. And all of those who are watching online who are Christians, you have family and friends and associates that need to hear the good news of Christ. And so I ask you this very important question. Are you equipped to share it? If this afternoon you were to come in contact with some man or woman and you got into a conversation and they looked at you and they said, that's really great stuff you're talking about related to Jesus. How can, how can I become a Christian? Do, do, you know how to, do you know how to tell them? Do you, do you know where to take them in the Word? Do you know how to share with them the good news? That's what the Mission Church exists for, is to help you learn how to do that so that you can have the blessing and the honor and the privilege of leading others to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to ask this as well of all of us Christians. There are many in this room who know how. You've sat through class after class. You've read several books about how to share your faith. I just ask you this, are you willing to share? Because knowing how to share means nothing if you're not willing when the door opens and the opportunity presents itself. And you might be saying to yourself, Pastor Mike, why are you hammering on this so hard? And I tell you that I'm hammering on it because truly a day is coming. A day is coming when you are going to be taken from this earth, either in death or in the rapture, and your opportunity to bear witness of Christ will then be over. 
And so the only time you have is now. And I ask, won't you commit yourself to being a representative, an ambassador of Christ the King? Be equipped, be ready, be willing to share the good news with others when God opens the door. Jesus truly is the worthy one. And that means he is worthy of your repentance and faith, dear sinner, and he is worthy of your total consecration, service, and worship, dear saint. Is your life reflecting the worthiness of Christ Jesus? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll take these things, some of them probably very easy to follow and understand, and others not so much. But I know that you are capable of opening the heart and the mind. And you are capable of shining light onto that which is complicated and mysterious. And you are able to bring about your will in the life of an individual who is willing to receive your divine work in them and upon them. And I pray for the saints who are hearing this message today that you will encourage them with the worthiness of Christ and the majesty and the power of him and that they will be eager and excited and ready to share him with others. And I pray for those who aren't believers yet that today something might have been said that would spark within them the desire to know more and that in that knowing more they would come in humble repentance and faith and receive you as their Savior and Lord. So Father, do with this whatever you choose to do. It's yours and so it's been put out there. May this day be a day where we rejoice in you, live for you, honor you. May we truly reflect your worth and your glory in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.